0: Aslan, Lucy and Susan climbed the hill on which the stone table stood. When they got to the last tree, Aslan stopped and said, Children, here you must stop and whatever happens, do not let yourselves be seen. Farewell. And both girls cried bitterly, though they hardly knew why, and clung to the lion and kissed his mane and his nose and his paws and his great sad eyes Then he turned from them and walked out onto the top of the hill and Lucy and Susan, crouching in the bushes, looked after him and this is what they saw. A great crowd were standing all round the stone table and though the moon was shining, many of them carried torches which burned with evil-looking flames. But such people, ogres with monstrous teeth and wolves and bull-headed men, spirits of evil trees and poisonous plants and other creatures I won't describe, because if I did, the grown-ups would probably not let you read this book. In fact, here were all those who were at the witch's side and right in the middle, standing by the table, was the witch herself. A howl and a gibber of dismay went up from the creatures when they first saw the great lion pacing towards them and for a moment even the witch herself seemed to be struck with fear. Then she recovered herself and gave a wild, fierce laugh. The fool, she cried, the fool has come, bind him fast. Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies. But it never came. Four hags, grinning and leering, yet also at first hanging back and half afraid of what they had to do, had approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when they found that he made no resistance at all. Then others, evil dwarfs and apes, rushed in to help, and between them they rolled the huge lion over on his back and tied all his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they'd done something brave. They had the lion chosen; one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise. Even when the enemies straining and tugging pulled the cords so tight that they cut into his flesh then they began to drag him toward the stone table Stop said the witch first let him be shaved Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers as an ogre with a pair of shears came forward and squatted down by Aslan's head Snip went the shears and masses of curling gold began to fall to the ground "'Why, he's only a great cat, after all,' cried one. "'Is that what we were afraid of?' said another. And they surged round Aslan, jeering at him, saying things like, "'Puss, puss, poor pussy,' "'and how many mice have you caught today, cat?' "'Oh, how can they?' said Lucy, tears streaming down her cheeks. "'The brutes!' For now that the first shock was over, the shorn face of Aslan looked to her braver.' and more beautiful and more patient than ever. Everyone was at him now. Those who had been afraid to come near him even after he was bound began to find their courage and for a few minutes the two girls could not even see him. So thickly was he surrounded by the whole crowd of creatures kicking him, hitting, spitting, jeering at him. At last the rabble had had enough. They began to drag the lion to the stone table. He was so huge that even when they got him there, it took all their efforts to hoist him onto the surface of it. When once Aslan had been tied, a hush fell on the crowd. The witch bared her arms. Then she began to sharpen her knife. She stood by Aslan's head. He looked up, still quiet, neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. Then just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, And now, who has won? Fool, did you think that by all of this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him as your pact was and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You've lost your own life and you've not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. The children did not see the actual moment of the killing. They couldn't bear to look and had covered their eyes. Uh, Well, that's probably the most powerful scene from my favourite kid's book of all time, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. It's tragic, a scene of sacrifice and waste, of senseless destruction, of justice overturned, wickedness and evil defeating purity and good Thieves and murderers triumphing over royalty. And of course it's the same picture we're presented here with in Luke's Gospel. Uh, the story that this one was written as a, as a picture or a metaphor for. Uh, Luke's Gospel describes little men, temple guards, Roman soldiers, cruel bullies mocking the king of creation. The one who possessed more power in his little finger than the combined might of the entire Roman army. Of Jewish leaders, the people Jesus had come to save, sitting in judgement against him, determined to destroy him. Common priests, standing in condemnation against the great high priest. Petty rulers, Roman and Jewish, sitting in judgement over the king of creation the one infinitely more worthy of wearing a crown than they ever were. Such little insignificant men. Yet Jesus took it from all of them. He never raised his voice, never raised a finger, he just took it. It's a picture of complete obedience and submission and sacrifice. And while we contemplate the horror of that picture, Jesus endures it all because of another picture that he has in mind. This is the opposite. It's a picture of honour and glory and splendour and majesty, of dominion and power. It was because Jesus knew who he was and where he'd come from and where he was returning to that he could allow himself Uh, that he could lower himself, allow himself to descend to those depths. Did you notice how he answered the Jewish leaders at the end of chapter 22? Chapter 22 verse 67, they ask him if he's the Christ and look at how he answers. If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. He's thinking about the book of Daniel in chapter 7. Daniel saw it into the future uh, as a vision. But what he was seeing was Jesus. Uh, And it was the situation Jesus would be returning to in the immediate future for Jesus. Uh, Let me read what Daniel saw in his vision. I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's what Jesus had in his mind as he endured all of this. If you read the whole of Daniel's vision, uh, the first part of it describes the rulers of the world. It describes animals of horrifying power. Uh, But all had a rule that was within limits, rule that came to an end, that was finite and temporary. The sort of rule that those who were torturing Jesus had, if you like, they're the animals of uh, Daniel's vision. And yet Jesus himself will receive everlasting power from his heavenly Father who welcomes him home. And it's that promise in the future of power that motivates Jesus to endure the suffering of the present. Jesus sees it but there's not too many others who see it clearly. Notice what they ask about this king, questions about his identity. The Jewish council ask if he's the Christ, if he's God's promised king, verse 67. Verse 70 they ask if he's the son of God, which is another kingly title. Are you uh, the, 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 the earthly son of God, the king, verse 70. In the chapter 23 there's Pilate, he asks if he's king of the Jews. Herod wants to see some magic tricks, yet is not too interested in the power that can win forgiveness. After Herod interviews him, he thinks it's funny that he's accused of being a king, and so he pulls out one of his own robes from the cupboard and he, he dresses Jesus in it and sends him back to Pilate. Something as a practical joke, and it seems to uh, join them in friendship from that moment on. Verse 11. And yet, through it all, the one with that everlasting dominion just holds his tongue and bides his time because his true coronation is still ahead. And even though he'd done nothing wrong, the guilty verdict is delivered and the crowd joins in on the act. A few days earlier they'd been cheering but now they're jeering. They insistently demanded, verse 23, that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. And Jesus is led off to be executed. But for all of these negative characters, we also see some unlikely followers. Do you notice them? The experts in the law have condemned him, his disciples have abandoned him. Perhaps they're the ones we might expect to be following, but instead it's this strange group of followers. Firstly, there's Simon from Cyrene. It's in northern Africa. It's as far from the events of Jesus' earthly ministry as anyone you can imagine. We're not told specifically he's a follower of Jesus, but the fact that he is carrying a cross is a strong hint. It's the picture of discipleship Luke 9.23 uses to describe discipleship, carrying a cross, following Jesus. Mark's Gospel, we're told that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus who were probably Christians known to Mark's readers. And so it's a fair guess to say that this African too is a follower of Jesus. A bit further on we see women. The men are too scared. There's no men to be seen but it's women who are there weeping and wailing. There in verse 27... A bit further on, down at the foot of the cross, verse 49, it's the women again. They're followed from Galilee. Verse 55, they pop up again at the tomb. It's the same group, once again no sign of the men. And at the start of 24, it's the women who were there bright and early Sunday morning at the tomb, the first witnesses of the resurrection. The women have recognised him. They're not the royal attendants we'd expect to see for a victorious king. The African, the women, and there's the criminal hanging right there next to Jesus, the least worthy of eternal life according to his deeds and yet he recognises enough to be guaranteed paradise. We'll return to him in a moment the African, the women, the criminal. Well, what about the centurion? Verse 47, one of the godless Roman oppressors and yet he identifies perhaps more of Jesus than nearly anyone else here. Verse 47, he praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Was that saving faith? We don't know for sure, but he spoke truly enough. He spoke better than those who should have known better. It's an unlikely collection of followers. But even today, Jesus calls a strange assortment of disciples as well. Take a look around you. Let me be honest, we are perhaps not the brightest, best looking, most religious, best connected, or wealthiest. But in 1 Corinthians 1, God says that that's the way He does things. He chooses an unlikely collection of followers. He chooses people the world might consider weak and foolish, so that rather than trust ourselves, we might trust God and not boast. And so as you look around you this morning and you're tempted to be discouraged by what we're not or how unlikely we are, remember that that's the way God loves to do things, to show his strength through weakness and humility, that he might get the glory alone. So let's pray that he might do that, that he might use us, receive the glory and grow his kingdom. Let's go back to the criminal for a moment. Verse 33, there are two criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Here is the king surrounded by thieves. Jesus predicted it back in verse 37 of 22 when he said he will be numbered with the transgressors. And so there we are with Jesus in the centre and the whole crowd abusing him. And one of the criminals joins in He is this criminal, completely helpless, convicted, hours from death and yet he's got enough energy to be able to to hurl insults at Jesus, looking to blame somebody else for his predicament. Apparently it's Jesus' fault that he's stuck on the cross. Don't we see something of that attitude in many people today? failing to take any responsibility for their own problems, refusing to recognise their own sin or the consequences that flow from it, but at the same time refusing to recognise that Jesus can do anything about it. They want to blame God for how life has turned out, but at the same time refuse to give him the allegiance that might lead to some change. Well, that's one criminal. But there's another ally in an unlikely place on Jesus' other side. And he says to that first criminal in verse 40, don't you fear God? You're under the same sentence. What are you doing? Look at where you are. We're punished justly. We're getting what we deserve. This man's done nothing wrong. And then to Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Two things. He, he recognises himself. He recognises that he's done wrong, that he's been punished justly. And secondly, he recognises Jesus. This man's done nothing wrong. And then a request, remember me. He sees with the eyes of faith past Jesus' broken, bloodied body. He sees past Jesus' black eyes and swollen lips He sees beyond his pierced hands and feet and he sees the glorious Son of Man. He sees him coming with the clouds of heaven returning to the one uh, who would be seated uh, returning to be seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. He sees the one that all peoples, nations and men will worship. He sees the one with everlasting dominion whose kingdom will never be destroyed. The thief saw it when he looked at Jesus and then said, remember me. He wants to be known, he wants to be recognised and accepted as a friend by this king. It's like a doorman at that popular new nightclub. Everyone wants to get in but you happen to know he's your best friend and that he'll remember you and that when you walk up to that front door he'll move you straight to the front of the line and you'll be ushered straight in. That's what this thief is asking for. Special consideration, favourable treatment, when it matters most at the judgement seat of God. And isn't the best part of this whole story Jesus' answer? I love it because it tells me that there's no one too far, there's no one beyond a second chance, no one who's so far gone that he's hopeless, no one who's left it too late. You can't leave it much later than this guy. And yet Jesus answers, today you will be with me in paradise. They're the sweetest words you can ever hear. They're music in the ears of this criminal. A criminal who'd recognised a king when he saw one. And whether this is something you've done before or maybe not, we should all follow the example of this thief rather than the mockery and rebellion and blindness of the rest. And we should throw ourselves at his feet, the feet of this King who saves us, the King who's bought us with his own blood. And we should join with all peoples, nations and every language in worshipping him because his dominion is everlasting. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... These pictures, these images, these scenes many of us have read and thought about them dozens and dozens and dozens of times but we pray that by your spirit you might stamp them fresh on our minds. Uh, Lord some of us perhaps are coming to these scenes for the first time. I pray that your spirit might make them real. Help them to see beyond the broken human body of Jesus and recognise what that thief did, a king who saves, a king with an everlasting kingdom and help them to do as that thief did and to trust Jesus and cast themselves on his mercy. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, We're going to sing again.